Hey everyone, welcome back to the Faithful Futures Podcast, episode 2. In this session, we're going to go through Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to go through a few topics today, including Christian liberty, some historical insight to the Jerusalem Council, and its relation to Galatians chapter 2, along with some other tidbits along the way. So thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. This shall be written for the generation to come. There's some things that aren't for sale. But I must maintain something. I'm standing behind this pulpit. There are some things that though death is inevitable, there is some things, though persecution and tribulation is inevitable, there are still some things that you cannot buy out. When is the last time you've been to church where you've seen young people under such conviction because the people of God have been on their face? And there's such a concern and there's such an agony that young people are falling on their faces and calling on God because a spirit of conviction is called down from heaven upon them? How many churches have you been lately where you hear a word comes forth that so burns in your soul? You know it comes from heaven. You know it comes from the heart of God. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? All right, guys, let's get into it. Galatians 1.11 through 2.14. So it's one of the, it's the longest autobiographical section in Paul's letters out of all of them. It's, a, it's the longest one. But Paul didn't write it as an autobiography, but to make it a point about his mission to take a law-free gospel to the Gentiles. He was at pains, obviously, we covered this in chapter 1, he was at pains to legitimize his gospel in face of opposition from some Jerusalem Christians who preached that circumcision must be added to faith as a requirement for salvation. And we, like I said, we touched on that in Galatians chapter 1, if you remember. But at the start of Galatians 2, we find Paul giving a little bit more of the history of him, his credentials, and if you remember from chapter 1, some of Paul's points were improving that his apostleship came directly from Christ, independent of the 12 apostles. So it answers the question in chapter 2 of what was Paul's relationship to the church and to the disciples? Um, it was, so, it, it, you know, this this chapter 2 kind of fills in some of those holes, right? And so we know Paul received the gospel by revelation, and so there was no connection to that New Testament church, to Jerusalem, at the Jerusalem Council, um, and we'll get into some of that, but he had never met any of the disciples, say Peter, until the Jerusalem Council. Um, so I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but so let's let's give let's give a little bit of a backstory for Galatians two and the Jerusalem Council that happened in Acts chapter fifteen to set a good preface for some of the things that we're going to talk about in this session. So it seems the rhetoric of Judaism. Uh, being required for Gentiles to be Christians was pretty widespread. So this was the whole premise of Peter and Paul's argument and one of the main reasons for the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. So if we look back, uh, we'll recall that the message of the kingdom um, was present presented by Peter and the rest of the Twelve in the first chapters of Acts, and that was offering Christ to the Jews. Their response, obviously, was not great. They stoned Stephen Paul was present for that. That happens in Acts chapter 7. 
And um, so then it was the message was taken to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, after the Jews was taken to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and 11. But between these two events, Paul was saved on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. So between the gospel being spread to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles, Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. And then the issue was debated finally with conclusion on the matter at Jerusalem. And this happened in Acts chapter 15. The believers concluded uh, that one God's will, was, will, will for today was to take out the Gentiles, a people for his name. Number two, that Paul was his apostle to the Gentiles with a special ministry to the body, the church. And number three, that the establishing, once the establishing of the church was completed, then the gospel that needed to be spread to the Jews would kind of resume after that was kind of the, the understanding. Um, but at the focus here in Acts chapter 15 and was the gospel being presented to the Gentiles by Paul. And then so we have all this building up, right? Acts 1 through 14, we have all this building up about Paul, about the gospel being spread. And then in Acts chapter 15 um, is where we kind of find a conclusion of everything that's been happening. All the arguments, all the debates about Judaism and if they have to be circumcised, all of this stuff. Um, and so the book of Acts sets a good historical preface and a good foundation on what we're going to talk about for Galatians chapter 2 today. So in Acts 15, we find some good insight on why Paul has written what he wrote in the book of Galatians. So it appears after their first missionary journey through Galatia, they come back to Jerusalem, right? So Paul is so concerned about the matters at Galatia and what is being taught there, probably not only in Galatia, but probably Antioch and Iconium and other places he had stopped as well. And so he says he goes back to Jerusalem because of a revelation. It appears that the fate of the Gentile ministry was being discussed in Acts 15, and God had especially called Paul to handle the preaching of the gospel unto the Gentiles. And the conclusion of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 codified theological unity within the church and made it a practical reality. And so before that, they were kind of at odds and couldn't agree on a whole lot. Uh, but the council at Jerusalem that happened in Acts chapter 15, which Paul kind of initiated by going to Jerusalem and meeting with them, um, it, it made a, a theological unity so the gospel could be spread efficiently. So let's read Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. It says, Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church, to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law. To whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, 
and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So Acts 15, verses 22 through 29, sets a good base of understanding for what we read in Galatians chapter 2 and some historical context of why Paul was writing what he wrote. So now let's go to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10 here. It says, Then fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation, and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run, or had run, in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the, of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. All right, so that's Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So Paul gets back to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus, and he says he tells them of the gospel he has been preaching among the Gentiles. And he says, I told them privately which were of reputation or the leaders of the church at Jerusalem. So that's probably Peter and, and John and some of them. But he gets back and he says, I, I have to, he talks to them privately, um, the ones that were kind of leaders of the church of Jerusalem. But this wasn't done out of fear because he thought it might be wrong what he was teaching. It was to keep it out of earshot of the false brethren, which is why he says, lest by any means I, I run in vain or have run in vain, meaning that they wouldn't like what was said and possibly ruin the testimony of what God had been doing for the Gentiles and also to avoid any open disagreements that would only add fuel to the fire. So Titus, he was a Gentile and he was uncircumcised. And in Acts 15 and 1, Judaizers state that if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. And it sounds like maybe that group had raised some noise about him not being circumcised. But Paul says, we didn't give any place to them. And in verses 6 of Galatians 2, Paul starts talking about those of reputation or importance. It, it appears here he may be talking about Peter, obviously, and John, like we talked about, and that they weren't much help on the issue in Galatia. And so he continues on to state that he was sent to the Gentiles, just as Peter was sent to the Jews. And so they, there's obviously a, a, a disagreement that had risen up in, in Galatia. Um, and so he's kind of, he gives a little bit of history here. Um, and, and we find that Peter was in Galatia at the time of Paul's first missionary journey. And so I don't know, the Bible does tell us that he stayed in Galatia for a short period of time with Peter. And so the context of, of this is what he's talking about. And, and so he said, talking about those of reputation or those of importance. And, you know, basically that they weren't much help on the issue in Galatia. So the disagreement was there. Obviously, we know that um, between Peter and Paul at this point. And this was 
this is one of the main reasons for the council at Jerusalem and more of what we'll get into in Galatians chapter two. Um, but one thing I, I want to kind of point out here. So in our, our disagreements with, with others, sometimes it's, it's good to have a neutral party, just like Paul went to the head of the Jerusalem church. Right. And so sometimes we have to have that neutral party, a pastor, a pastor, or somebody you look up to or entrust. Um, so this was the reason, no doubt of Paul coming to Jerusalem that everything could be done in a decent way where feelings wouldn't get hurt. And so everything was on the up and up with everyone and everybody could get on the same page about it all. And to be noted, it was done with great transparency. Sure. There are some things that need to be discreet, right? Between two people, but there are many things that need to be transparently handled, especially when it comes to church matters, like what was happening here. And, you know, this is a good example of, of things being transparent, but but always having that neutral party, somebody that can kind of be not on one side or the other, but hear the story and give you good advice. That's an important thing to have. So in, in Paul and Peter's disagreement, they handle it well. They handle it biblically and they handle it like Christians. Um, but sometimes what we find is people, when they disagree, they just won't be around those people. They disfellowship or they won't go places that these people go um, or those type of things. But I would I would like to maybe give a, a, an insight on that out of Romans chapter 14. And, um, you know, it teaches us that God's welcomed, welcomed them in Christ. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, the Lord's not going to leave people as they are. We understand that. And there are some things, obviously, that are worth shielding yourself from and not going and being with those people because of conduct or things that they are doing. Um, but if they are Christians and they are serving God, he doesn't make their pattern of conduct the basis of his welcome. Jesus doesn't, and neither neither should we. So there's a lot that we could dig into about that subject and about our disagreements with our brothers and sisters and the importance of working through issues with them. But we should always, when we have disagreements with others, we should always handle it like a Christian. That means no bad attitudes. That means being humble and willing to discuss the matter with mutual respect, which is what Paul and the others did. It doesn't mean that they don't disagree. It just means that you do it in a way where there's still brotherly love, where there's no power trip, so to speak. In our disagreements with our brothers and sisters, we should do our best to head off pride in every aspect of it. So moving into verses 11 through 18, Let's read those right quick. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, 
Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul's desire in this passage right here was to show his independence from the Jerusalem church and at the same time show their agreement with his law-free gospel. And at the core of this effort, this is where we find Paul in dispute with Peter. Both had risen to places of leadership and influence in the early church. Paul, after a dramatic conversion, was now a missionary to the Gentiles. Peter was one of the original apostles and a leader of the Jerusalem church. He was now also a missionary. Little, however, is known about Peter the missionary. The first 11 chapters of Acts show him to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. But by Acts 12 and 17, James, the brother of Jesus, seems to have surfaced as leader of that church, and he certainly was by Acts chapter 15. Peter's diminished role as leader in Jerusalem is explained by his departure on the mission. And Acts chapter 12 reports that after escaping prison and reporting to James, Peter departed and went into another place there in Acts 12, 17. Where that other place was, we don't know and can't be sure. Eusebius thought it was Rome, but more likely it was northern and western Asia Minor since his first letter was written to the churches in that area. This is all we know of Peter's missionary work, save for the mention in Galatia. So in, in this scripture, verses... 11 through 13, when Peter came to Antioch, it appears that he fell into what we like to call mob mentality. And we see a little bit of the same Peter we've seen that denied Jesus. And Paul calls him out and says he was fearful of the Judaizers and even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And I think it's important to note here the danger of religion. What do I mean? Let's be clear. First, I'm not talking about deconstructing your beliefs and going on a rampant about the latest and greatest trend happening in the evangelical realm. What I am meaning is that Peter and the others were so radical about what they believed that they were excluding an entire group of people based on non-salvation issues. There have been many atrocities, horrible things committed in the name of religion, and the answer is not ever religion, which is what Paul is teaching us here. Religion is what the Pharisees and Sadducees had. Paul said, the answer is Jesus and nothing else. So going on to verses 14 through 21, Paul calls out Peter in front of everybody. He says, Peter, you're a Jew and you're living like Gentiles. How in the world are you going to tell the Gentiles they have to live like Jews? So Peter's response is, is great. And it almost appears as if Peter says, you know what, Paul, you're right. And he goes into his response that Justification is by faith in Christ alone, and that no work you could do could justify mercy or atonement for us, and that we're only justified by faith in Christ. And then in verses 17 through 18, he's continuing his response, and it, it kind of dives into the subject a little bit of Christian liberty, and um, you know that it's we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even if we even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And so in regards to Christian liberty, Many have taken Christian liberty and ran marathons with it and never stopped running. So what is, what is Christian liberty? Do we have freedom in Christ? Absolutely we do. 
but not freedom to sin, not freedom to do whatever we please. And and this is what we read in Peter's response in verse, in verse 17, that if while we are seeking justification in Christ or trying to serve him, we are found sinners or we are found messing up, that doesn't make Christ a minister of sin. That doesn't make him agreeable to sin. It makes us a transgressor, a transgressor of him. Christian liberty is not this get out of jail free card. God calls us to holiness and to serve him to the best of our ability. And if you want a pretty solid explanation for Christian liberty and what that means, read verses 19 through 21. He says, through the law, I died to the law in Galatians chapter 2. He says, for I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. There was no reason for Christ to die if, if I could just live by the law and that was what righteousness came by. But we know that not to be the case. Righteousness does not live in us. Amen. It's only in the grace of Christ. And so if you want a good explanation for what Christian liberty is, is verses 19 through 21. He says, through the, law, through the law, I died to the law. It says, he led captivity captive. Christ became the law for the law. Romans 8 and 3 tells us for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus took on the weight of sin for us. He became the lawgiver and the lawkeeper for those that believe on him. This, my friend, is Christian liberty. Verse 21 tells us that we are crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Peter continues, he says, I, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. And expounding more on Christian liberty, the life that I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a great thought that Christ loves you, gave himself for you. Walk in that. That's Christian liberty. Having joy when you shouldn't because you know that Christ loves you. That's Christian liberty. Verse 21 says, I don't frustrate the grace of God. For if I am righteous because of what I do, then Christ died for nothing. But you can't be righteous. You see, the connotation in today's culture of the American church surrounding Christian liberty, this idea surrounding Christian liberty by American church, by the American church and culture is somewhat like this. You can do this, but you can't do that. You can eat chocolate pudding, but not tapioca. You can drink black coffee, but you can't put creamer in it. You can do this, or you, but you can't do that. That's what Christian liberty has been created. That's the concept that has been created around Christian liberty. And we've made... We've made it something about us, like we do a lot of the time. But I'll tell you this, it has absolutely zero things to do with us, and it's all about Him. He is Christian liberty. His death on the cross for mankind, the purpose of that? Christian liberty. So we don't have to bear the weight of the law. And thank God for that. In closing, I had this on my mind while putting this session together. Many times I've heard the phrase, I've, I've got to get some stuff right before... I get right with God. I would like to be very plain that you don't have anything that you can do to make yourself good enough for Christ or God. There's only one that can make you good enough for that, and that's Christ. All that we do must be done in, in light of biblical balance. The decisions you make, what you wear, the way you talk, the music you listen to, and the things you watch 
We should all do, we should do all of those things in light of God's word and how it reflects upon the subject. And so Christian liberty isn't this, do this or do that. Christian liberty is walking in the grace of Christ. It's Christ became the lawgiver for us. We know that that we don't make Christ the minister of, of sin if we fall and if we mess up. That's our transgression against him. And we have repentance for those things. Thank God for that. But but Christian liberty is walking in the grace of Christ, which is what Paul was telling them. He said, I, we don't need any more laws. Christ became the law for us. That's what Paul was telling Peter in the council of Jerusalem. He said, I, he said, I'm crucified with Christ. This is what Peter was telling Paul in his response. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And not I, but Christ that liveth in me. That is Christian liberty. Paul taught and he preached and he called the council at Jerusalem because he was saying Christ became the law. We don't need anything else. He laid down his life for us. That's Christian liberty. And so, like I said, I've heard that phrase many times. I've got baggage or I've got this or I've got that or I can't do such and such because of such and such. Um, that's not the case. We don't have any ability to make ourselves better or to make ourselves good enough for Christ. Christ was this and is the solution for all the things that we have, all the baggage that we carry, everything that we fight against in our fleshly desires. Amen. That's Christian liberty. That is Christian liberty. So walk in Christian, true Christian liberty today. It's not a, it's not a do this or a do that. It's, it's walking in the grace of Christ and realizing that we're not under the bondage of sin anymore, that we don't have to live under the pressure of of sin and the, the death of the law and all of those things. Christ is Christian liberty. All right, guys. Well, that's all I have for episode two um, on our Galatians series. Um, next time we will dive into Galatians chapter three and go through that chapter. Um, guys, please let me know some feedback. Uh, some topics that you'd like to go over. All all the links and emails and stuff will be in the description below. We'll share this episode on Facebook. Let us know. Give us some topics. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We appreciate it. <laughs>